Welcome to the Global Business Women's Pod, brought to you by the Greater Houston Women's Chamber of Commerce. I am Susan Dyson and proud to be the CEO, President, and Founder of the Chamber. Please join us for this empowering podcast every Thursday at 6 p.m. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage our next keynote speaker, best-selling author of The Bodyguard, Catherine Center. Um, hey guys, I'm Catherine Center, and I'm a novelist. I'm probably the goofiest person in this room, is my guess. Um, I have um, a whole bunch of novels. A bunch of them are New York Times bestsellers. Um, yeah, <laughs> thanks. I live in Houston. That's where I'm from. My newest novel, The Bodyguard, is set uh, right outside of Houston on a ranch out I-10 by the Brazos River. Um, I'm like a fifth generation Houston person, so I've been around a long time. Um, my 10th novel comes out next summer, and uh, two of my books have been made into movies, actually. Uh, one of them you might have watched on Netflix during the pandemic. It was called, is called, The Lost Husband. Yeah, yeah anybody? Um, and it stars uh, Josh Dumel. And um, y'all, let me just say, if, if you don't know who that is, he's worth a Google. Feel free to like take out your phones. Um, and it's set in Texas. They filmed it all around Texas. There's a great shot of the Houston skyline. It actually hit number one on Netflix in 2020, which was pretty amazing. Oh, thanks. <laughs> So I'm going to talk a little bit about writing and my sort of career as a writer and, um, you know, reading for joy and how I kind of got where I am. And um, thanks for being here. It's so fun. Okay, so I wrote my first novel when I was in the sixth grade, and it was fan fiction about the 1980s boy band Duran Duran. And I was super, super awkward in the sixth grade. Like everything that can be wrong with a sixth grade girl was wrong with me. Everything. I had giant buck teeth with braces top and bottom, crisscrossed rubber bands, a headgear that I had to snap in at night. I had a terrible haircut with a mullet. Um, I had long, flat feet like snorkeling flippers. That is still true. Um, and I had no fashion sense. Like, it was very bad. It was very bad. And I was the middle child of three girls. I was the Jan Brady of the family. And my sisters were so horrified to be related to me. Like, I genuinely, truly was so awkward that at one point, my older sister had to stage an intervention with my mom and say to her, you have got to take her to the mall. She is bringing down the entire family. <laughs> so I knew that it was bad. Like, I knew this about myself. I just didn't know how to fix it, right? I was panicking. I was very apologetic. I just walked around all that sixth grade year, just like hunched over an apology, like, I'm sorry. 
I too wish this weren't happening. <laughs> I don't know what to do about it. But I was very lucky that year, as miserable as I was, because I had two best friends who were also awkward and also miserable, and we were all in love with Duran Duran. And we somehow got this idea that we should write novels about meeting the band members, and we should cast ourselves as the main characters in the novels, and so we did. We would suffer through the school week as only sixth grade girls can suffer. And then on the weekends, we would get together, have sleepovers, put on our PJs, take out our little spiral notebooks, jump into somebody's bed, and read our novels to each other in installments. And so sixth grade was truly misery for me, but writing those novels was bliss. And I really feel like before I go any further, I just need to take a step towards full disclosure and tell you exactly what happened in my Duran Duran novel. This is fiction, so don't be alarmed. <laughs> don't be frightened. This did not really happen. But in the novel, in the novel, Duran Duran is driving through my suburban neighborhood in Houston, Texas, near the Galleria, when they get a flat tire on their limousine. And this is the 1980s, and there are no cell phones, so they need to find a landline to call a tire guy. So they walk up to the closest front door, which just happens to be my front door. And I just happen to be home at the time watching MTV and busting my dance moves to their Hungry Like the Wolf video. <laughs> I told this story to Deborah Duncan on her show one time, and now every time I'm on that show, they play Hungry Like the Wolf music to like walk me in. So I hear the bell, I answer the door, we're still in fiction, I answer the door, I find all five of these beautiful world famous rockers on my front stoop, I panic internally, but I play it cool. I invite them in, I let them use the phone, I make them microwave popcorn like a gracious hostess. And I don't know what was going on with the tire guy that day, but he was like super, super busy and could not get to us in a timely manner. And so I wound up having to spend, you know, like several hours hanging out in my mom's living room, making chit chat with Duran Duran. And somehow in this one magical, astonishing afternoon, all five of them fell in love with me. <laughs> And that was the entire plot. Um, I had to decide which one to marry. That was the whole, the whole story. Yeah. So as you can imagine, it is the worst novel ever written in the history of the English language. If there were a prize for that, I would have it. My older sister has explicit instructions that if I'm ever hit by a bus, her number one job is to go up to the storage tub in my attic where I still have that book and burn it very quickly. I'm like, I'm like, there is no time for grieving. Don't go to the funeral. Just get to the attic and destroy the novel. It's very embarrassing. My publisher actually, right before the pandemic, flew me up to New York to do a series of promos one of them was for the Target showcase wall, which really felt like the big, the big time. And they asked me to bring that novel with me. And I'm so obedient. I was like, sure, not a problem. It never occurred to me that they would ask me to read from it out loud, but they did. Documentary style, I'm like sitting on a stool and they were like, just read a little bit from it. And so, you know, I did. 
If that promo ever comes through your Instagram feed, just know that I am not acting. That is true, genuine human humiliation. There's nothing fake about that. It was the most embarrassing thing I've ever done on purpose. So that's, that is how I got started. You know, that novel is horrible. It's sort of humiliating. It's every now and then I'll go up in the attic and think, oh, I'll just read a little, you know, for nostalgia. And as soon as I start to read, it's like chopping onions. My eyes just start to water. I'm like, whoo, this is terrible. So it's embarrassing that it ever happened. It's embarrassing that it exists. But also at the same time, like as bad as it truly, truly is, it was also kind of genius, you know? We, all three of us girls, were sinking in sixth grade. We were going down. We were having such a hard time. And we kind of rescued ourselves with that novel. You know, we, like, we found a way to tell a story to ourselves that mattered and that felt real because actually that's the smartest thing I've ever figured out about fiction. There's a magic to fiction. There's a magic in there that isn't anywhere else in human life. It does something really, really special to you. Because here's the thing about stories that is so unique. When you get caught up in a work of fiction, whether you are binge watching something on Netflix or reading a novel, when you get lost in a fictional story, you know it's not true, but you believe it anyway. You know, you know it's not real, but you believe it anyway. If the writer has done their job, you get lost in that story. You care about that story. That story matters to you. And because you care about it, it has this potential to talk to you and change you and teach you things and matter to you in this really profound way that you can't find anywhere else in human life. You're not going to find it in a textbook. It's very special. And so that was... I couldn't have told you that in sixth grade, but that was definitely the moment when I got hooked on like this, whatever this was, this sweet nectar of fiction. And I decided I wanted to be a writer. Like there I was, 12, and I was like, problem solved. I know what I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be a writer. So fast forward 20 years, <laughs> and I published a novel. So it took me 20 years. I did not actually publish a novel until I was 32, despite going to Vassar College and majoring in English and creative writing and writing a creative thesis that was a novella that won the Vassar College Fiction Prize. Actually, that same week that I won the Vassar College Fiction Prize, I also kissed this really cute boy from my art class, and then I graduated. And then on the drive home from New York to Texas in the car with my mom, we debated it the whole time, like, which was the bigger accomplishment. <laughs> she was team Vassar College Fiction Prize, and I was team cute boy from the art class. But that's what I wanted to do. You know, I wanted to be a writer. I had no idea how hard it was going to be to be a writer. When you decide you want to be a fiction writer, you're basically deciding you want to win the lottery. The odds are insane. And if I had known that, I never would have tried. So I'm actually really glad that I didn't know. I went to college. I went to grad school and got a master's in fiction writing, which turns out to be like kind of a worthless degree that qualifies you for like no jobs. Didn't know that either. Um, and then after grad school, I spent like eight solid years sending short stories to The New Yorker and getting rejected for eight years and working in a bookstore where I got to meet Larry McMurtry, but mostly just getting rejected and sending short stories out, not getting anywhere. My mom, we're from Texas. I'm from Houston, and we have like 500 cousins in Houston, and my mom would have this Christmas party every year. 
and all the cousins would come over, and everyone felt really, really sorry for me because I was trying so hard to be a writer and I just couldn't get anywhere. And they would all kind of show up and kind of lean in with these very like sweet, pitying Texas lady faces and be like, sweetheart, are you still writing? You know, and I'd have to be like, yeah, I'm still writing. And no, I haven't published anything. And yeah, I'm chasing a dream that I'm never, ever going to catch. It was really tragic. We all felt very sorry for me. It was like this horrible affliction that I had. You know, I would try to publish things. I would fail. I would decide that I was going to quit writing forever. I'd be like, you know what? This is not healthy. I think I'm done. I think I'm not going to do this anymore. Like, I'm not getting anywhere. This is actively painful. Like, I think I'm, I'm going to quit and just get a normal job and, and, and not keep trying to do this thing that's never going to happen. And that would feel really good. And then like two weeks later, I would get another idea for another story and I would start up again, you know? And we all just felt so sorry for me. I had these two functioning sisters who were like contributing members of society and then there was me. And I never could make it work until one day, I had written this novel and then I had gotten pregnant and had a baby and sort of forgotten about the novel. And I was with a friend of mine, another mom, at the park, and she spotted a woman across the way who was a published novelist. And she was like, don't look now, but that woman over there has a published novel. You need to go over there and make her help you get a book deal. And I was like, can I do that? And she was like, yeah, you got to do it. And I don't know about y'all, but like if I ever see anybody who can help me, I really panic and I try to get as far away from that person as possible. So I literally like darted off behind an oak tree, but my friend who did not have the same issues boldly marched over to this woman and she was like, that is my friend Catherine hiding behind that tree over there. And she's written a novel and I've read parts of it and it's really funny and don't you want to help her get that book published? And I could, I swear I could see the fear on that woman's face from like 50 feet away, but she politely agreed to take a look at the first three chapters. And so I emailed them to her that night and she wrote me back the next day and she said, I know I told you at the park that my agent wasn't taking any new clients, but now that I have read your first three chapters, I would really like to pass them along to her if that's okay with you. So I said that was okay with me. So she sent these chapters off to her agent who wrote back within the hour saying that she wanted to see the whole book. And so I sent off this 300-page manuscript to this total stranger in Los Angeles. And a few days later, she called me out of the blue and said, I love your novel and I can sell it. And within a couple days, oh, <laughs> I can't see y'all, thank you. Uh, within a couple of days, uh, she had sent it out to eight different publishing houses in New York. There were four that were interested. She got them into an auction and then she got them into a bidding war. And, it, you know, it was like summertime. I was home. My husband's a school teacher. He was home making a mess. I had the naked toddler running laps around the house. I was like in my sweatpants. And this lady from L.A. is calling me like every hour. And in my mind, I'd never met her, but in my mind, because she was in L.A., she was like tooling around the Hollywood Hills in like a Grace Kelly convertible with like big sunglasses on and a scarf, you know, which is pretty much how she is. Anyway, she'd call me every hour and she'd be like, you know what? They're still going. I'll call you later. And at the end of that night, Random House won 
the bidding war. I got a two-book hardcover deal with Random House that's like every writer's dream. And after all these years of failing and failing and failing and failing and failing, I could not get to sleep that night, right? So my husband went peacefully to sleep. My children miraculously went to sleep. And I was just wandering laps around the house, like flipping lights on and off, stepping over Legos, just thinking, I don't know what to do with this. And there was this moment when I took a big deep breath and I thought, you know what? My life is never going to be the same. And then the next morning when I was up at 5.30 with the baby, I was like, you know what? Actually, it's going to be exactly the same. <laughs> and I, you know, that was 15 years ago. I, that was my first book deal. I want to tell you that that was the happy ending, but it was really only the beginning. You know, I started this whole big long process of trying to figure out, <laughs> I mean, once you get a book deal, then you have to find people who want to read your book. And I don't know if y'all know this, but nobody wants to read your book. Nobody wants to read your book. Like, we had this idea, my mom and I, we were like, we'll do it like a telephone tree. If I get 10 people to buy it, and they get 10 people to buy it, and they all get 10 people to buy it, pretty soon we'll have blanketed the entire country and we'll be ruling the world. Um, that's not how that works. <laughs> I actually spent the next 15 years just slowly, slowly, slowly meeting people, getting out there, writing books, trying to find people who would like the kind of thing that I do, and the kind of thing that I do is like bittersweet romantic comedies. Um, and it took a long, long time, and I've slowly, slowly gotten better, and the way that I got better was to pay attention to what it is that I really love in stories, to like find my own compass about what my very favorite thing is. And I didn't give up, and I kept going, and that's kind of the whole you know, it was just a real stubbornness, really, that kind of got me from the beginning to 15 years later, where I just feel like I should end by telling you about meeting Josh Dumel. Did everyone Google him? <laughs> so in 2018, my book, How to Walk Away, which um, was my first book to ever hit the New York Times bestseller list, the week that it hit the list, I got a call from a movie production company that they wanted to turn my other novel, long forgotten novel from 2013, into a movie. This novel was called The Lost Husband. And so obviously I said yes to that and we sold them the rights and that fall they filmed the movie in Austin and other fun places in Texas. This is alarming. And um, <laughs> <laughs> There's robots happening. Um, they invited me to come and be an extra in the movie. So I got to go to the movie set. We kind of thought they might be filming it on their iPhones or something. We weren't sure what to expect. But it was like a real movie set. They had like that train track where the director sits on the thing and rides along. And there was Josh Duhamel. And he came over to say hello to me. He was like trying to talk to me like a normal person, you know, like you do, like people talk. And he's, first of all, he's eight feet tall. He's like a human buffalo, this man. He's enormous. He's so handsome. He like sparkles. It's terrifying. You've never seen anything like it. And I, he like came over just to say like, hello, I hear you wrote the novel. The novel, the, this is all based on it. It's so nice to meet you. I'm Josh. I was like, I know who you are. Thank you. Um, but what actually happened to me in that moment was that I fully forgot how to talk. Like I went completely silent. I just stood there gaping up at him like a wide mouth bass, just my mouth sort of closing. I felt like a rotisserie chicken at the grocery store, like my skin got all hot and crackly. I was kind of spinning around. I did not know what to do with the handsomes. My husband was standing like 10 feet away looking at me. He was like, what is wrong with you? I was like, I don't know. <laughs> it's hormones. So anyway, that movie hit number one on Netflix that year. I know, it's great. 
you can still watch it. It's out there. And then based on the success of that movie, um, another one of my books got sold as a, uh, for a movie. It's being done as a Netflix original right now. It's starring Ellie Kemper from The Office. And uh, Luke Grimes, who's on Yellowstone. I got a side hug from Luke Grimes if y'all want to find me later and like say hi to my shoulder. Um, and uh, Blythe Danner, who's Gwyneth Paltrow's mom. And uh, yeah, so I guess I'll just close by sharing all of that good news with you. I wish I could like time travel back to my sixth grade self and be like, it's gonna get a lot better, sweetheart. Just give her like a little hug. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you again next Thursday at 6 p.m.